When Kari Patterson woke up one Wednesday morning back in 2018, she expected it to be like any other day. But then... I came into work and there were balloons everywhere and barbecue. Her office was having a party at 9 a.m. At the time, Kari was working for a startup called Team, this IT company that specializes in office management tools based in Salt Lake City. And it turned out that the balloons, the barbecue, it was because the company had just been acquired by another startup, a really big one. And that was the literally the first time I heard the word WeWork. Yeah, they were getting acquired by WeWork. That's the company that leases co-working spaces and became famous for its work-hard, play-hard culture. Their CEO, Adam Newman, was revered as a kind of eccentric genius. That is, until their $47 billion IPO crashed and burned last year. But back in 2018, WeWork was a startup darling, one of the hottest in the country. Kari's bosses were thrilled about the acquisition. They had these t-shirts, custom-made, hand-lettered, that said, the future is amazing. Uh, Yeah, well, Kari did not feel like the future was amazing. In fact, standing there in the middle of the festivities, she burst into tears. I was crying because it's hard to find a tech company that really values a female IT person. It really is. Like, my, I had had so many bad experiences until I became a part of this tiny startup. She was afraid the acquisition meant her company would disappear and she'd get fired. But her boss told her not to worry, that she'd keep her job. It just meant she'd join the WeWork family, one that she'd soon discover was pretty dysfunctional. Looking back on it now, WeWork's, like, workplace culture was, like, too much. It was way too much. I'm Erima Khreis, and welcome to This is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace about life and how money messes with it. For a lot of people, work has become an all-consuming part of life. And when we see our coworkers more than our friends or family, it leaves us questioning, are our jobs trying to fulfill too many of our needs? This week, we explore our exhausting relationship with work. After Kari's company got acquired, WeWork basically tried to win her over. They flew her to San Francisco for training, booked her a nice hotel, showered her with praise, and her new bosses said they'd groom her to be in a managerial role someday. They treated me like Anne Hathaway in The Devil Wears Prada, like this like ugly little duckling from small town. And they were like, we can teach you to be big tech executive girl. She says she was taken aback by the offices. There were neon signs that told you to hustle harder. And in the kitchen, even the fruit in the water coolers was carved to display motivational slogans like, don't stop when you're tired, stop when you're done. It was all a bit intense. Like on Monday, we stayed at the WeWork until 11 p.m. No. <laughs> yes, I'm not kidding. Like, and what? I loved my coworkers. But, but it's like, not that much. No. Late nights at the office were not unusual. Like, WeWork even had these team-building events called Thank God It's Monday, where employees were expected to stay late and drink tequila with coworkers. I didn't quite understand. I was like, isn't this just a leasing company? Yeah, on its face, the company got its start by just leasing office space. But its larger mission, which seeped into the corporate culture, was so much more than that. The company wanted to revolutionize the way we think about work. 
And it started at the top with their CEO, Adam Newman, this charismatic leader who would walk around the office barefoot and brag about working 20-hour days while preaching the WeWork way. We are changing the world here. It's elevating the world's consciousness was one of WeWork's like little credos. Our mission is creating a world where people make a life and not just a living. We want to uplift the world's consciousness. We really want to go to the next level. Newman would often spread his gospel at WeWork's summer camp, basically the wildest corporate retreat I've ever heard of. Each summer, the company would fly its thousands of employees to bond in a remote field where they slept in tents, did meditation sessions, pottery, roller disco, and danced to performances from big-name artists like The Roots and Lord. Like I said, wild and expensive. Even the annual summits where they laid out their strategic vision for the year felt more like a big party than a work event. When Kari went in 2018, the Red Hot Chili Peppers performed. And Newman gave this speech that really stuck out to her about how he wanted to expand the company. This was the summit where he said, we live, we sleep, we, like, we everything, we space. Like, we Mars was one of those things that he just threw out on the stage. We Mars. Yeah. We go to Mars. We go to Mars. Like, Kari got a kick out of the event. But it also made her a little skeptical about WeWork. After that, everybody was convinced it was a cult. Like, WeWork was trying to create these communities where you could, like, work became nigh inescapable. Like, WeWork was essential to your life. And Newman loved to throw around the phrase, we family. Because they're like, we're your family. Like, we're your corporate family. We're like... Would they actually use that language? Oh, all the time. Like, all the time. It was, like, extremely pervasive. Like, we can teach you these things through WeWork because we value you. You're part of the we family. Besides Kari, I talked with a few other former WeWork employees, and they said the whole We family and company ethos were things that really drew them in. Do you feel like at any point you, like, drank the Kool-Aid a little or no? Yeah, I I will say that I did, and I, I actively tried to. I talked with people who really loved their time at WeWork, happily worked long hours, and spent a lot of their free time with coworkers. There's even one video of a guy proposing to his girlfriend at a company event. You're my partner, and more important than anything, you're the love of my life. And now, I don't love to... One former employee I talked to compared his time at the company to being in an extremely intense relationship. It fires out of a cannon, yeah. right? And everything is bang, 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 bang. Everything is just on fire. Things feel so good, then out of nowhere, it falls apart. Years later, you think to yourself, yeah, I would never do it again, but I'm so glad it happened. Yeah, that guy eventually got laid off while on paternity leave over Christmas. Even though Kari was skeptical, she did like her new WeWork family. It meant finally, for the first time, having coworkers who were people of color and women— her office in Salt Lake City had mostly been white men. They were offering diversity in a place where I had never seen it before, really. Like, they were offering it as, like, um, like a real thing that they cared about. 
Plus, she was getting a lot more responsibility. She was taking management courses through the company, sometimes working 70-hour weeks, including weekends. She was being trusted to place orders worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And she went from being in charge of 150 employee accounts to 13,000. It was a huge step up. At any point, did you ask for more money or more benefits? (laughs) No. Yeah. I didn't. What I was making at WeWork was below market value, and I didn't ask for it. Mm. Well, did, did you feel like, oh, I should just be thankful for these perks and for the fact that I'm part of this community now? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, it, it like, I am a woman in a patriarchal state who works in a field that is largely dominated by men. So to find any company that says that they see you and will like help with your career goals, you will accept less because that feeling is really hard to find. They kind of got you to buy into their company culture a bit? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But then, about five months after her company got acquired, WeWork started laying off some of her old company's leadership, including her old CEO. He was under the impression he was going to move forward with the company. They laid him off. And as the IT person, Kari was assigned with the incredibly awkward task of collecting all of her former boss's work equipment. She remembers sitting in a conference room with him, clearing off the data from his computer. I just sat there and talked to him and talked to him about like how, he, how disappointed he was. He was bitter with WeWork and in that moment kind of lashed out and told Kari they had basically screwed her and her coworkers over, too. He said, you know, all that swag we gave you was to make you complicit when we took a bunch of your benefits. What? Yes. Since getting acquired by WeWork, they were getting free swag pretty much every week. Socks, jackets, mugs, even a really nice Patagonia jacket. And he was basically saying all of it was just smoke and mirrors. Kari paused to think about it. After the acquisition, not only had she not gotten a raise for the extra work she took on, but WeWork had also cut her old employee benefits. So no more unlimited time off, no more commuter benefits or free parking. Plus, under WeWork, they lost health insurance coverage for the largest hospital provider in the area. In total, she calculated that WeWork got rid of about $1,800 worth of benefits per worker. Like, where was the WE family when it came down to crunching numbers? We talked with some of her former co-workers, and they said, yes, they lost some benefits. But WeWork offered a few new ones as well. But for Kari, she was upset with herself. She felt like she'd gotten so blinded by the allure of their culture that she didn't advocate for herself along the way. And now she wondered, what was WeWork's company culture actually worth? It became painfully obvious that company culture is like a, a means to give us like a, a false sense of loyalty to retain us in lieu of actually giving us economic advantages. Then six months later, in August 2019, WeWork, the most valuable startup in the country, started publicly crumbling. Swirling questions over corporate governance, valuation, and its business model causing... Every day now they're trying to come up with something to salvage this IPO, and I don't know if they're going to do it. When WeWork decided to go public, it brought a lot of scrutiny to the lavish spending and their profit margins. It turns out the company was bleeding money. Its valuation of nearly $50 billion free-falled to just 
$5 billion. We'll run out of money in the first half of next year. Last week, year. the company said it was laying off 2,400 employees. Now reports of 4,000, maybe more job cuts. To salvage itself, the company laid off thousands of their wee family. Meanwhile, Kari started looking for another job. And about a month ago, she landed a position at Netflix, a company she really loves. Like, just a few weeks ago, she was at this meeting, and they played this promotional video about the work they accomplished in the past year and how what they were doing was impacting the world. After that meeting, like, I felt this, like, lump in my throat, and I realized that I have to separate the product that I love from the job. Because thinking back on it, WeWork feels like a cautionary tale to her. It was this place that yearned to also fulfill spiritual and social needs with a mission so grand and shiny, it made it easy to overlook the flaws. She says if she were to lose her job at Netflix tomorrow, sure, she'd cry over the fact that she's going to struggle to pay the bills. But I won't cry because I can't walk through the doors of Netflix. You know what I mean? It's a stupid concept to like have your worth rooted in capitalism. Workplaces want to like infiltrate your emotions, make you love a thing, and and then they could take it away at any moment for their bottom line. And Kari is appreciative that, unlike WeWork, Netflix is pretty transparent about their bottom line. She says they actually lay off about 8% of their workforce each year, and they do this thing called the keeper test. The boss basically analyzes your performance and decides if they would hire you again at that moment in time. And otherwise, they lay you off. Which actually isn't as cutthroat as it sounds. Kari says if you don't pass this test and you do get laid off, you're guaranteed to get four to six months severance. She says it's refreshing. They're so upfront. They make it very clear that, that they're not a family. Instead, Netflix says it's a team. A team you won't be on forever. Coming up after the break, why we are so obsessed with work. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. So Kari's experience at WeWork brings up something I think about a lot, which is what role work should play in our lives. Truthfully, I go back and forth. Sometimes it feels like the most important thing in the world and the thing that defines me. And other times I get mad at myself for giving it so much weight. And I wonder, or really hope, that I'll prioritize it less as I get older. Mainly, it just feels overwhelming. I was curious how other folks feel, so I went out to this busy street near work the other day and bothered some people. I think uh, work should be a big part of your life and should give you some sort of mission. When I first started working there, yes, it was just like a job that I needed just to pass time. But over the time that I've worked there, I built like relationships. It's kind of like family. I know that sounds cheesy. I know it sounds corny, but that's kind of what it is. 
I think it's really, you know, a nice idea to find work as your passion, but I think in reality, a lot of us kind of find that meaning in other ways. When I first went in to interview, I kept asking, did you guys all drink the Kool-Aid here? And now I can officially say I have as well. <laughs> my job is, is very important to me. It's a way for me to exhibit my, my talents. Every time I introduce myself, the second or third thing I say is I'm a teacher. It has so much meaning, that's why I'm willing to work so hard for it. Yeah, I feel like if you're lucky to find a job with meaning, then I'm all for it. But if not, it's just another nine to five. You know, I'm currently unhappy with how much of my identity is tied up in my job. And I'm kind of trying to unravel that. If you lost your job tomorrow and were no longer in this career, how would you feel? I'd be depressed. I feel like I lost part of myself. Um, I wouldn't really feel anything. I would just get another one. I think I'd have, to, I'd have for sure an identity crisis. If I lost that, I don't know who I'd be anymore. How we wrap up our identity in our work is something that Derek Thompson has thought a lot about. In fact, he even has a word for it. I have called this process workism. Derek is a writer for The Atlantic, and I called him up not too long ago to get his thoughts on all of this. But before we get into this idea of workism, a little context. He says a hundred years ago, economists had this bold prediction that basically, by now, thanks to automation, work would be easier and we'd all have five-day weekends. We would work less and less and less and less, mm. and therefore the project of our life would actually be finding meaning in leisure. Wouldn't that be nice? But yeah, instead... The opposite has happened. Americans are extremely overworked. And what Derek finds most interesting is that rich, college-educated people are working more than they did 30 or 40 years ago. This is totally ahistorical. Throughout most of you know, human history, the rich worked less, period. He says for the poor and middle class, work has remained a necessity. But the reason college-educated professionals are working more is that the purpose of work has changed. And that's where his term, workism, comes in. Workism is the idea that our jobs have come to serve a quasi-religious purpose in our lives. That a lot of the things that people have historically looked to religion to provide, whether it was meaning or purpose, transcendence, community, we now look to our jobs to provide those very things. Basically, his theory is that there's been a shift in our society. Instead of looking at work as a way of creating material well-being or a way to buy free time— many people are increasingly making their jobs the centerpiece of their life's purpose. I would describe the evolution of work as a story of Americans moving from jobs to careers to callings. He says for most of human history, a job just used to be a job. For example... You were a farmer, and your father and mother were farmers, and their grandparents were farmers, and it was just farmers as far as the eye can see. But then came the Industrial Revolution and the birth of the modern company. And suddenly, instead of a boss overseeing a handful of employees, these factories, manufacturing plants, and railroad companies had hundreds of workers. You needed a new organizational structure to make these things work. And as a result, you needed a hierarchy. And so in the early 20th century, the modern corporation birthed the modern career. 
educated people in particular began to see their working lives not as this sort of static still pool where you just farm, 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 and then you die. Instead, you were working toward in your life, a series of acronyms. You are rising the corporate ladder toward SVP, VP, CEO. And now Derek says another shift is happening, a.k.a. workism. Climbing the corporate ladder is no longer enough. Now we want our work lives to be infused with meaning. And he says there are a couple of reasons for that. The government, through its policies or lack thereof, encourages work, you know, by tying our health care to our jobs or by not mandating that new parents get paid leave, which is the norm in most wealthy countries. But what I find most interesting is that he points to the decline of mainstream religion in America and says people instead are looking to other sources for community and spiritual fulfillment. And for a lot of folks, they try to find that in work. Which makes sense. In high school and especially in college, I remember always hearing, just do what you love and you'll never have to work a day in your life. I think that there is a a relatively popular idea in today's workforce, um, that it is incumbent upon individuals, especially young, highly educated individuals, to love their job. Mm -hmm. And this is a dangerous idea. More and more companies, like WeWork, sell employees on the idea that work is meaningful, that the company is changing the world or is one big family in the trenches together, and that you're special for being a part of it. Derek says that kind of rhetoric, it can be a way of squeezing more out of workers. I think often, you know, employers that say, oh, you know, this job is so important, this job provides so much meaning, be careful when they're saying that Mm. for the purpose of with withholding money from you, saying you are being paid with meaning, not with money. No, get paid with money. <laughs> meaning is good, but definitely get paid with money. Definitely get paid. And it's difficult because we live in a society that glorifies workaholics and celebrates essentially burnout culture. I mean, when you compare the U.S. to similar countries, we work longer hours, take fewer vacations, and retire later. And the truth is, as Derek puts it, our desks were never meant to be shrines. When it comes down to it, our labor force is really designed to help serve the needs of consumers and capitalists, not to make us feel deeply fulfilled. Every job in this economy is basically invented to sell stuff or to help somebody else sell stuff. I mean, that's that's just capitalism. That said, of course, some people do end up finding fulfillment in their work, whether that's by helping people or serving some larger good. Which is great. If we're going to spend half of our lives working, wouldn't it be nice to find jobs we actually enjoy or where we feel like we're making an impact? But that's not always the case. I think a lot of people, when they ask their jobs to be their religions, they're you know placing these expectations of, of fulfillment in their careers mm-hmm. that their jobs and careers just probably aren't going to provide. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, because then you feel this pressure to find work that's not only meaningful, but maybe can change the world one day or, to your point, feels like your calling or your passion. And I just wonder if that sets up people for disappointment instead. It absolutely sets <laughs> up people for disappointment. I think that work can give people a lot of things. It can give people uh, ritual. It can, you know, fill their hours with challenging tasks that allow them to grow as thinkers um, and as experts. But there are also certain things that work can't do. You know, like creating long-lasting relationships with friends or family. I think it makes sense to find meaning in what you do. And personally, 
I take a lot of pride in being a journalist, but I don't want my work to be a barometer of my self-worth. Because really, no matter how much you love your job or your company, it'll never love you back. If you have thoughts on any of this, on work and how it impacts our identities, and you want to share, as always, you can shoot me a note at uncomfortable at marketplace.org. We'd love to hear from y'all. All right, that's all for this week's show. This is Uncomfortable is me, Dima Freis, Megan Dietry, Haley Hirschman, Peter Balanon-Rosen, and Daisy Palacios. Our intern is Daniel Martinez. Tony Wagner is our digital producer. Drew Jostad is our engineer. Editing by Sarah Kramer. Sachar Nieves is the executive director of On Demand. And Deb Clark is the senior vice president and general manager of Marketplace. And our theme music is by Wonderly. All right, I'll catch y'all next week. Do you like your job? Not really. <laughs> Why not? Uh, my manager's an asshole. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy.